Wow, it's hard to follow that. I feel like we could just stop now. It's like following Dana Dirksen at the rescue mission, preaching after she leads music. It's always a disappointment when she sits down, at least to the guys that are gathered there. It's a delight to be in worship with each of you. I'm glad that you have come this morning. Our gospel reading is Luke chapter 5. Follow along in the bulletin as I read. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more so that the crowds of people came to hear him and he healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, Your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we ask you that you would meet us in this place this morning. Some of us are believers firmly rooted in your community, and yet if we're honest, we find many doubts circling around what we claim to be true. We wake up many days wondering if you'll show up. Others are wrestling with deep hurt, with disillusionment, with confusion, and are almost ready to give up. Some are just bored, fatigued, cynical. We have no expectation that today will be any different than the thousands that have come before. Father, wherever you find us this morning, would you meet us with your grace? Would you surprise us with hope? Would you walk into our doubts and confusion and patiently sit close to us? Teach us this morning what it would mean to truly define ourselves by you and your promises rather than all of the frustrating and disappointing ways that we are told every day that we must determine our personal worth. Teach us what it would mean to be named by you, to be fully healed by your gospel, to be continually made new by your restorative touch. Teach us this morning, Lord, to believe again. We pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. It's our second week in the study of the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to see two things in this passage. We're going to see how these healings bring division and they bring wholeness. That Jesus' healings, His message, His ministry brings division and it brings wholeness. It's sort of fallen out of the news as of late, but during the fall, almost every newspaper, every blog site, website, and so forth had some reference to the Occupy Wall Street movements. And of course, we all know how they occupied parks and they sat in parks and so forth, but they also had other corollary things that they did, one of which was trying to disrupt the uh, flow of commerce in and out of the port of Portland. And just like other protest movements, they're designed to make as much noise and cause as much commotion so people will pay attention and ask, what are their beefs? What are their problems? What are the things that they're saying that is wrong with the status quo? And most modern democracies put up with this sort of thing to some degree. And governments, if they're wise, will listen because oftentimes these movements are saying something, though in a very radicalized way that the majority would never approve of, the sentiments that are behind their methodology often is shared throughout the nation, throughout the community, in some degree. And often, if it's not, these protest movements have a way of heightening these certain things, of changing the sentiments, of changing the conversation, changing the things that people are willing to talk about and things that are on the news. They tap into something that's more widespread, though a little bit less radicalized. Now, the Pharisees were sort of like that. They were a pressure group. They were a protest group. They were a movement, not an official body. And this is the first time we've encountered them in Luke, and they will continue to come up throughout our study. They will continue to be the foil to Jesus. They'll continue to be the antagonist in the story. Now, this is the first time in Luke, but why are they here? Why are they showing up in force? Well, they're inspecting Jesus. They're checking up on him. They've heard that there's this rabbi, this teacher, that is talking about the kingdom of God. And that's the Pharisee subject matter. That's their expertise. And so they want to come and find out if Jesus is one of them, if Jesus is on their team. So it's like these two protest groups that are colliding in the street, trying to figure out, are they for us? Are they against us? They both agree that something's wrong with the status quo. And at first glance, you would think that the Pharisees and Jesus would have many things in common, that they should be allies because they're talking in broad strokes about the same thing, the kingdom of God. But when you scratch a little bit under the surface, you see that they couldn't be more different, that their assumptions about what is actually wrong with the world, with the status quo, and how to solve it are radically different. The Pharisees thought that the kingdom of God, that is the manifestation of God's reign and rule on the earth, would come when the right conditions were in place. That if the Pharisees could get everyone to be more observant of the law, of Mosaic law, of Torah, then that would create the right conditions for the kingdom of God to finally come. And so they were a protest movement against everything that was wrong with society, trying to get society to respond, to, to be more obedient to the law of God. Now, Jesus' is, Jesus' approach to the kingdom of God is far different because 
he sees the problems with the status quo and with the world at large as being much more foundational, much more profound than just the outward conformity to the law, outward obedience, the way that society conforms outwardly to the law code. He believes that the kingdom of God not only brings God's rule and reign, but also brings in God's mercy, brings in God's grace to a broken and hurting world. His message, his approach is put on the spot when these guys lower their friend into the room. His friends want him to walk. They want him to be physically healed. And what does Jesus say in response to their faith? Your sins are forgiven. And if you're paying attention, you can almost hear the air go out of the room. A collective gasp. Your sins are forgiven? This rabbi, that's not even what they're asking for. They want him to be healed physically. And it's not even his faith. It's his friend's faith. And yet he says, your sins are forgiven. Jesus, the Pharisees say, you're undermining everything that we stand for. You're subverting the kingdom of God. We have rules for the way that people go about getting forgiven. They have to come through us. They have to obey the law. They have to go to the priest. They go to the temple. You're undermining that whole process that we have upheld for hundreds of years. But beyond that, and more importantly, only God can forgive sins. Jesus is blaspheming against God. Now suppose with me for a moment that someone has hurt you deeply, and they've really hurt you, okay? And they come to me, and they ask for forgiveness. And I say, okay, I grant them forgiveness. How would you respond to that? Well, you would be incensed. You would say, you can't forgive them. They hurt me. They didn't hurt you. You'd be incensed. And that's what Jesus is doing. That's sort of what's going on. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Your sins, plural, all of them are done away with. Because any sin, no matter who it's directly against, no matter who is directly offended, any sin, all sin, is against God. And in that I am God in the flesh, all sin is against me. And therefore, I can forgive your sins. I can make you clean. I can erase your debt. And the Pharisees were incensed. There was an ER episode. Do you remember the medical drama? I think it's been replaced now with a different one, Grey's Anatomy. But back in the 90s, it was the big thing on television, must-see TV. And I didn't catch this episode when it first came on. But a few years ago, a clip from one episode called Atonement made its way around the Internet. Now, in this episode, a man jumps into freezing water to save someone. And he's an older man. And so being in the freezing water, he needs to go to the hospital and get checked out. And while he's in the hospital, he finds out that he has terminal lung cancer. Not only that, but he's a doctor. He worked in a prison for many years, and his job as a doctor was to give the lethal injections to the prisoners on death row when all of their appeals were finally done, done up with, uh, finished. And so that was his job, basically killing people on behalf of the state. But he's riddled with guilt because he knows that somewhere along the way that some of those people who he killed were actually framed, were actually innocent. And his guilt, just like this cancer, is physically eating his body alive. His guilt and shame is eating him from the inside out. Now, I'm going to try and give you a little bit of a dialogue here because I think it's very informative. He asked for a chaplain. 
He wants a chaplain to come and tell him, where can I find forgiveness? And so the chaplain comes and he says to her, how can I hope for forgiveness? She says, well, sometimes it's easier to feel guilty than forgiven, which means what? Well, if the guilt has become your reason for living, and maybe you need a new reason to to continue on. I don't want to go on, but I'm afraid of what comes next. What do you think comes next, she says. You tell me. Is atonement possible? What does God want from me? I think it's up to each of us to determine. So people can do whatever they want. They can rape, murder, and steal. That's not what I'm saying. That is what you're saying. And I'm quoting here. All I'm hearing is new age, God is love, one size fits all crap. I want a real chaplain who believes in a real God. I know you're frustrated, but you need to ask yourself. I don't need to ask myself anything. I need answers. And all your questions and uncertainty are only making it worse. I need someone who can look me in the eye and tell me where to find forgiveness. Now, I know that many of us have sympathy with that chaplain. We would want to be able to give comforting, reassuring answers that if you're sincere enough, if you really hope well enough, then certainly that God will take care of you when you die. He doesn't really care how you believe about him, how you conceive of him. It's simply that you're sincere. But let me ask you that: this. Does that really comfort you? Does that really relieve your anxiety about what is true beyond this world? When you look at the world and you bear witness to the atrocities that go on almost daily, in fact daily, when you peer into the darkness of your own heart, your own past, the ways that people have hurt you, are you comforted by a fuzzy, nebulous idea of forgiveness? When we wrong someone, I mean really wrong them, and we go to them and we ask their forgiveness, we don't want to hear, well, you're just human and everyone makes mistakes and, you know, try and learn from this and do better next time. No. We want to hear from them, you hurt me deeply and yet I forgive you. Jesus knows this about us. He knows that deep within our soul we want to be clean We want to be right with God. We want to be ready for his presence. And Jesus says, I can do that for you. I can forgive your sins, not in part, but in whole, all of them, done away with, erased forever. I will forget your sins. To those who see themselves as whole, Jesus' message, his healing brings division. To those who see themselves as divided, broken, confused, needy, his healing brings wholeness. Wholeness in three ways. First of all, his healings bring wholeness in the restoration to human community. Let's backtrack a little bit. We looked at the uh, part about the paralytic. Now let's go back and talk about the leper. This leper comes to Jesus and bows before him, Lord, If you will, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, this man is breaking the law. He's very reverent in the way that he's doing it, but he is walking into this group that is gathered, and he's a leper. He is not allowed to do that. 
He can't walk into community unannounced. He can't walk down the middle of the street and not announce himself as unclean. There was these very exacting, very methodical Jewish purity laws that were, had very strict regulations for lepers. Now, leprosy in the, Old Testament, in the New Testament, what we think is not simply what we know modernly speaking as Hansen's disease, but it was a whole constellation of contagious skin disease. So there was a lot of people that could be lepers in that community. And there was laws governing how they would operate, how they would live in community. And they were basically pushed out and isolated away from those who were healthy. Now, these laws weren't simply taboos that were thought up by a very legalistic uh, group. These were actually very wise medical standards. They were what we would think of as normal hygienic practices because without modern medicine, leprosy was very contagious and also very deadly. But though this was wise from a medical standpoint, it also meant that those with this disease were completely isolated. They couldn't live within their home anymore, in their family anymore. They couldn't participate in worship. They couldn't go to temple. So leprosy was as much of a social disease as it was a medical condition. Now he heals him, and then he says, go to the priest. Now why would Jesus say that? Why does he say, go to the priest? He's clean. He's made whole again. Well, the local priest acted not only as the teachers and administrators of law, but also as the commissioners of health. They had to sign off on someone who had been sick, been diseased, now reentering community, or no one would touch them, no one would go near them. But if you could go to the priest, and the priest could give you a clean bill of health, then you could reenter fully into community. You could rejoin your family. You could come to worship for the first time, perhaps, in, in many years. It's clear from this that what Jesus is concerned about is not simply healing the person physically, but a complete restoration of everything that the disease has taken away. He intends that this former leper would be able to go home again, that he would be able to embrace his family if he has a family, that he would be able to come to worship as the, with the gathered community as a full and accepted member what we see is that from this is that the healings are not really about the healings per se. The miracle is rarely the point as we go through this gospel. In fact, Jesus tells him, don't go and report the miracle. The point is not the miracle. It's that he gets to go home. He gets to be embraced. He gets to reenter human community. That's part of the wholeness that Jesus' healing brings is a restoration to human community, but it's also a reversal of human status. Jesus has a very varied approach to healings. Sometimes he says, well, go home because the healing has already happened. Sometimes he says it just with a word. Sometimes he says, go wash in the river. He has a varied approach to teach us different things. But what does he do here that he doesn't have to do? He doesn't have to touch the man. But he reaches out his hand, this dirty leper, and he touches him. This rabbi, this person of stature, reaches out to this nobody, this outsider that no one wants anything to do with, and he touches him. I watched a documentary not too long ago on a child who had grown up in Romania, and she had basically lived apart from any human contact. She was kept in a room. And so her parents never touched her, 
not one time. And by the time she was 13, she was basically feral. She had more in common with the animals that lived outside of her little compound than she did with humanity. Why? The doctors posited that it was because she did not experience human touch ever. And it made her feral. It made her wild. When I'm doing counseling with couples, often if I see that there's something going on, some point of dissension, I'll ask them to hold hands, to put their arm around one another. It changes radically the way that they then interact. They begin to see each other as another human person, not as an adversary. When you touch someone, when you hold their hand, when you put your arm around them, it communicates something that is very deep within us. It meets a need that's, that we all have to be touched. Now, lepers couldn't touch anyone. This person probably had not been touched in years. When we see that Jesus, in reaching out and touching him, not simply forgiving his sin, but extending the hand of God, physical touch, that he is concerned with this leper beyond just his spiritual life. Of course, he wants to deal with that, but also he wants to renew him emotionally, physically, psychologically, socially, that that's what Jesus' healing is after. It's not simply to allow this leper to go to heaven when he dies. It's to restore him fully as an entire person. It's a reversal of human status because in Jesus, your sin is obliterated and you get his status. Your sin goes to him and his status, his touch, everything that that implies comes to you. You're made whole, you're made clean. There's a whole new world at hand in Jesus' touch. It is the end of uncleanness and it's the beginning of the end to death itself. That's what Jesus is conveying when he actually physically touches this person. We see not only a restoration of human community to human community, a re- reversal of human status, but we see finally a renewal of human wholeness. The onlookers say, we have seen remarkable things. We have seen strange things. The Greek word is paradoxical, where the word that we get, our English word, paradox from. It's always dangerous to take the English word and read it back into the Greek. But here, it sort of works, because what they are conveying is that we have seen paradoxical things. We have seen unorthodox things. We see in these healings Jesus' unorthodox approach to religion. We see the irreligion of this religious leader. You see, religion says you got to be clean. you got to make yourself presentable to God, and then he'll accept you. But Jesus says you can't make yourself clean. You can't be fit for the presence of God. But I am the presence of God, and I bring his presence to you. I bring his cleansing power to you. I bring his forgiveness to you. I make it yours. You don't go up, but I come down, Jesus says. Now, everyone here, what is common among us is that we are searching for some sense of cleanness, some sense of wholeness. No matter how we define that, no matter what our religious background is, we are looking for something that would complete us, that would make us secure, that would make us whole, that would make us most human. Many of us see ourselves as deficient 
And there is something wrong with us, and it turns us into competitors with one another. We're constantly trying to fill our own gaps to make ourselves whole by trying to take something from someone else. And because we're constantly negotiating with these lesser verdicts, we don't know who we are. And we live lives of defensiveness and touchiness and suspicion of other people. We don't believe what Jesus is telling us in the gospel. We don't believe that only God's verdict matters ultimately, that he's covered all of our deficiencies, all of our gaps, all of our sin that he has an answer for. Friends, wherever you're coming from this morning, what would it be like if the ultimate reality in the universe, if God himself made a pronouncement upon you that you are acceptable, that you are clean, that all of your sin has been done away with forever? What would it be like if that ultimate verdict was read on your life today and nothing could erase it? How would it change the way that you live if you knew that God saw you as fit, as acceptable, as fully whole, even in the midst of the broken and tumultuous life and heart that you have? For God to see all of you, to see right through your defensiveness and not turn away, but yet embrace you, reach out to touch you. What it means to be a Christian is that you see yourself as an outcast who's been brought in, not because of your own goodness, but because of God's goodness, because he loves the outsider. He loves the outcast. He loves the person who is impoverished and will admit it. When you're brought in, when you are once an outsider who's been made an insider, you therefore are able to look away from all the things that you've previously defined yourself by, money, power, performance, your good looks, and you're also able to reframe your failures, though as real as they may be, because those are things that God has covered. Those are things that Jesus defends you against, even if they're actually wrong. You live a life, if you understand the gospel, as if only his verdict matters. Let me finish with this. Someone sent me a blog post this week, or maybe I read it on Facebook. I can't remember. But it was a post from a woman whose family is the picture of perfection. They all, their children, the two parents look like models, and they dress stylishly. But this put-togetherness was very intimidating to other people, especially those that they went to church with. And she had this encounter with a woman uh, after church one day, and the woman said to her, you are so pulled together, it just makes me feel so apart. And so she left church feeling this conflict over wanting to dress nicely, wanting to wear designer jeans, she says, and yet let people see the real her allow them into her story. And her internal conversation culminated in a conversation at a park with a new friend that she had met at church. And she said, listen, I want you to know that I'm a recovering alcoholic, drug, and food addict. I've been arrested several times because of those things. Craig and I got accidentally pregnant and married a year after we started dating. We love each other madly, but I'm secretly terrified that my issues with sex and anger will eventually screw things up. I get jealous easily. Sometimes I actually feel sad and worried when good things happen to other people. 
Oh, also, I snap at customer service people and my kids and my husband regularly. I feel like I always have rage right beneath the surface. And right now I'm dealing with some postpartum depression, I think. I spend most of my day just wishing my kids would leave me alone. One of my children brought me a note the other morning that said, I hope mommy is nice today. It's depressing and scary because I keep wondering what happens if that feeling never goes away. Maybe I just can't handle this many, this many kids. Anyway, I just wanted to let you know those things. Can you imagine having that conversation with a new friend? She says that the other person stared at her long enough that she was worried that she was going to call the minister or the police. But then she started crying. And in tears, they sat down on the bench and she told her everything, that she began to divulge some of the many same things and struggles and worries and concerns that this person had just shared. Friends, you see, you can only be whole if you first fall apart. You can only be made clean if you admit that you're dirty. You can only be restored if you admit that you need it. And once you do that, once you begin to understand fully what the gospel says, that though you are wretched and far away from him, that God grants you his status fully and irrevocably, then you can begin to enter into other people's pain and dirt and sin and sorrow because you know how Jesus has entered into yours. Let's pray now as we end. Father, thank you for uh, this passage. Thank you that you remind us each and every week as we come and assemble at worship that we are not alone in our sinfulness, that the person next to us, however they may posture themselves, is broken and weak and often sad. And Father, I pray that that would give us uh, an opportunity, give us the gumption to share that about ourselves because we know as we look inside our own hearts how often we fail, even by our own standards. And yet we posture, we become defensive, we wear masks, we try to act like we've got it all together. Father, I pray that this church would be a place where people can be free, where people can be free to admit how wrong they are, how sinful they are, and how much we need your forgiveness collectively and individually. Let us be a place, in short, that understands the gospel, that has hope because of Jesus, not anything that we have done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.